Hello and welcome to the Mythological Africans podcast, where we read and talk about stories from African mythology and folklore. I am your host, Helen Gay. Episodes of this podcast come from live recordings of the Mythological African Storytime Sessions, which take place every Friday evening at 5 p.m. Eastern Time U.S. in the Mythological African's Twitter space. In this episode, which was recorded around the premiere of Viola Davis's spectacular movie, The Woman King, we talk about the Agoji, the woman-only military regiment of the Kingdom of Dahomey, and delve into the lives of women in the kingdom. So thank you all again for making time to join. Um, my name is Helen. I host Mythological Africans. And uh, the co-host here is Rafiad Aliyu. And um, like I said, she'll talk about herself once we get going. But let's, let's go ahead and get started with this, just this moment of silence, you know, acknowledging the weight of this history and what we're what we're going to try to accomplish here okay Thank you all so, 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 so much. Um, I hope that in that silence you were able to, you know, gather yourself and open up to what we, we are about to talk about. Um, that is one thing uh, Rafiat recommended yesterday, that we all keep open minds. And speaking of Rafiat, i turn the mic over to her for an introduction and maybe a word about what you expect to come out of this conversation, the intention you're coming in with and the expectations you have for for the conversation. Sure. Um, so hello, everyone. As Helen has said, my name is Rafiat. I am a writer who, in her spare time, does a lot of reading into um, history, specifically West African history, and more specifically women um, in West African histories and you know we can keep going on more specificities. I'm Yoruba from Nigeria and you know I I'm just interested in knowing like the space women have occupied throughout the different um eras of recorded um history in Nigeria and in um surrounding countries. Um this conversation and I think Helen will be okay with me saying that it, it came out from discussions after the the trailer for the movie, The Woman King came mm-hmm. out. Um, 
I spoke with about two or three of my friends, including Helen. Um, again, because I, I'm, I like reading about history and I've done a lot of reading about um, women in um, in Dahomey, but also about Yoruba women outside the like the Nigerian colonial created Nigerian borders. Um, I, I was familiar with where this um, the era in which this film was setting. So the trailer came out and there was a lot of conversation and discussion about that. And I'm not someone who is very active on social media, but I went <laughs> to like my private chat to my friends and we talked about this topic. But I found that with Helen, we sort of had a very um, richer, I guess, conversation because Helen is also someone who is interested in the history, the myths, the stories on folklore. And that was how this, um, the idea for the space came about. I definitely am more tilted towards discussing and learning more also about the historical and cultural, um, I guess, cultural nuances that this film comes from or that might have inspired this film. So I'm looking forward to this discussion and to learning and to sharing the little that I know and also to hearing what everyone has to say about this movie. Thank you. Thank you so much, Rafiat. And I'm, I'm really glad that you highlighted where this space is coming from, right? Because one thing to keep in mind is that, yes, it's a movie, it's entertainment, but stories serve a very, very real function, and that is helping us make sense of the world. So whether it was on social media or in private conversations, this story prompted a lot of, you know, a quest to make sense of the world. And I, I feel very fortunate that um, in the conversation I had with you, I, I was able to, you know, re, 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 reorganize my thinking about this event. Because if you remember, click, uh, if you remember when you first made the comment, my, my reaction was kind of, aversive you know if i remember my words exactly my my first words were well crap if someone yeah. were to make a movie about this terrible thing and not represented accurately they kind of deserve to get slaughtered in the media you know that's mm -hmm. what i said yeah. but i also after i said that you know i kind of sat with that like okay that's that's interesting that strong you know negative reaction first and foremost why is that you know of course the movie is about, you know, a people who, if we're being honest, you know, they, 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 it's kind of difficult to comprehend some of the things that happen in that, in that society. But um, in many ways, they, they are us, right? We live in a world now that has incredible cruelty, um, some of which we participate in, if not directly, indirectly, you know, and sitting with the reality that, okay, these, these, this is something that happened. Um, and regardless of the story that is being told about them, there is something underneath that surface that, you know, my, my negative reaction kind of caused me to pause. And then the conversation with Rafiat continued and she made a statement um, to the fact that the, the Alhosi, who are the women of the palace in general and sometimes men, but the Agoji in particular, were not, you know, these just women who like to fight and cause pain to other people, they're, they're, they, they were coming from somewhere. And that place that they were coming from influenced who they became. And that's, that is something to keep in mind. 
And I, I would not have come to this realization without the conversation with Rafiat and the, the knowledge that she brought to it. And I felt, you know, hey, why not share this with everybody, right? Because the thing that happens on social media is that it's an opportunity to meet and talk with other people, but it can also really flatten narratives, right? You have a situation where these women were part of a slave trading kingdom and that is all they could be ever were or they could ever be. Which, you know, the fact that they were a part of a slave trading kingdom is real, but what else is there? Who else were these women? How did they arrive at where they are? How did Dahomey come to be? And what can we learn from that, you know, especially as informed by this movie? So all of that being said, I'm going to start with a question, right? Just by a show of hands, who has watched the movie? I've watched it. I know Rafiat has not yet had a chance to... Um, but just by a show of hands, who has watched the movie? You can do a heart, a clap, just something to indicate if or not you've seen the movie. Okay. All right, so we have at least one other person who has seen the movie. All right, so that that is good, you know, and that is workable. Um, I hope that as we have these discussions, we will not, you know, spoil it for you. But to an extent, that is unavoidable because we're talking about what happened in the movie. And um, we are really zeroing in on the women in the movie, how they were portrayed, what that says about the human condition, how the women were perhaps in real life based on what we know from readings um, and just what, what do we leave this conversation um, with, right? That being the case. So quick question um, for all the readings that we proposed, right? We had the book, we had a couple of research papers, um, articles. Did everybody get a chance to take a look at things? You know, get a sense of what we're working with here, the information, the actual Dahomean history. Maybe just by a show of hands, if you, you read something, watched something. All right, we have a couple of people. Lovely, lovely, lovely. So what 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 I think I will do is give a quick overview of this the, the movie's plot. Right, so we, we have that to work with without giving too many details. Um, in the in the outreach that has come out of the movie, in terms of you know what it does and doesn't do, um, one thing that is clear is that this this movie doesn't actually tell a true story. So let's be clear about that. Right, it doesn't actually tell a story. It tells uh, a fictionalized account of events. Um, it borrows from history, but it's not true to history. Um, let's let's make sure that that is clear. But it tells the story of a woman who was the head of the Agoji, you know, rose from basically, you know, someone in the corpse to its leadership and became an advisor to the king, a trusted advisor to the king. And it's an exploration of her conflict about being you know, a woman, a Dahomean, um, a fighter, but also in the service of a king who was participating in something as immoral as the slave trade. And her position was that we should shift from selling people to selling palm oil. And of course, you had people who felt otherwise. Um, and then 
So that's that's Nasika's story. Nasika is played by Viola King. But then you have the subplots, right? The stories of the different women in the movie. Um, Izogi, who is like one of the best fighters, almost like, you know, Nansika's assistant. Um, the other lady whose name just popped out of my head, but is Nansika's best friend, for lack of a better term. And they, they've known each other a long time. They've confided some very deep, deep and important secrets to each other. Is a story of a young recruit who joined the palace organization and became an agoji because she didn't want to marry. Um, and she wanted to be a fighter. So it's all these interconnected stories. And without giving away too much, you know, it tells the movie, the way I see it, it tells the story of the women, the sisters, the mothers, and the friends who exist underneath that label of agoji, of warrior, of killer, of slave raider and trader, right? Because that is the truth. Underneath all of these things were these women, these human beings um, who had these complex lives, which we might never really know because the lens through which they are most commonly seen by, the way we understand them is as these morally compromised warriors. And so the, the movie being what it was is an exercise in wishful thinking, but it gives, I think, a peek at what might have been but also a glimpse into what could be, right? What could be. We could all be, you know, the agogis we wish they were, for lack of a better way of putting it. So um, keeping in mind that there are people in the room who have not watched the movie, I really, really don't want to spoil that for anybody. So let's let's keep it at that level. Um, but we've all had a chance to read something about this. So I'm going to... I'm going to ask a question, right, to the group. Um, and what what I'm interested in is, what do you feel about the Agoji right now, right? Given what you know, you may have watched the movie, you may not have. What what are your impressions, just thoughts about who the Agoji were, given given where you are right now in you know space and time? So this is a question to the room. Everybody's in listener mode. If you would like to talk, please, you know, indicate, and I will, I will give you, give you the mic. Um, can I answer that while we wait for people to Absolutely. respond? Yes, please. So I remember, I think the very first time I heard about the the Agoji, you know, and how they're sort of, oh, these Amazons, African Amazons, you know, Amazons were not real, but they were real in West Africa in this, like, era, you know, and they were sort of, um, there was something like, I, I don't know what the word is, just like some kind of like awe in the way the women were portrayed, you know, mm-hmm. like those put forward as, you know, these are heroes, you know, these are these are um, powerful women at the time. And me, I just, my first reaction was, you know, okay, this is cool, but, you know, I know there has to be more to this story. Mm-hmm. You know, I have this, my healthy dose of um, skepticism. Um, funny enough, like when it comes to how I approach West African history for the longest time, I was only literally interested in reading right up until the 15th or 16th century because I was just not ready to you know delve into what was happening um, with the arrival of the Portuguese and other Europeans um, so I wasn't looking at you know 
it, it took a long time for me to sit down and start like deliberately reading about the Agudi and Ahome and all of that. And I think after I read what like some of the resources like um people here have read, I might have had a, a reaction that was similar to the one that Lupita had. Mm. You know, Lupita was supposed to be in the movie and then she did that documentary and um, you know, she was shocked by what she found. Mm. I, I don't know if this was on the list, but there was an account of a, a Yoruba woman who had been enslaved. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes, a Yoruba woman remembers servitude, mm-hmm. you know. And I think it helps me form a very, like, a, a more, I guess, rounded opinion, you know, knowing that, okay, these people, these women are not necessarily heroes, but then there's so much complexity in their lives when you mm-hmm. think about, like, where they are coming from. And you know, it also raised just the question or the thought for me as to how for, like, you you made, you made a point earlier on and how, like, there's been so much brutality in the world. And in many ways, it seemed very, like, highlighted or showed, like, some, at some sort of peak in the West African nations at that time, like, wars were happening all over the place. Yeah. Wow, so... So I think for my reaction now, it would just be more like, I still struggle to accept them as heroes. And I'm I'm going to find time to watch the movie this week. So I'm curious to see how like the, um, that came through. But yeah, they're just, I guess human beings is the mm-hmm. one for it, you know, complex mm-hmm. humans. Thank you. Thank you so much, Rafiat, for taking us on the journey with you, right? because we, speaking for myself, um, echoing what you've said and, um, you know, perhaps venturing to uh, imagine that this was a similar experience for most people. Um, Many of us heard about the Agoji by way of Black Panther, right? And, um, you know, it it was like, oh, this, this is cool. This is amazing. You know, these fighting women. And then you want to go find out more and you're just introduced to this world of, confusion so we've we've all in a way um been on a journey for the most part about you know how how to feel about these these women um but i i really appreciate uh, your 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 understanding of things Rafiado, seeing them as human beings set in a historical period um i think that that is something that is important it's really really important to keep in mind as we look at these women their actions what they were part of um to put them in historical context like you said um around the world you know there was violence in waves and peaks and it was interwoven with social and economic conditions and um when when you put it in that way you know it it humanizes it doesn't redeem them necessarily because there is a, a world of pain and that pain is ongoing, you know, their, their actions had consequences that we're still facing today. You know, it doesn't redeem them, but it, it humanizes them. And I, I really appreciate that perspective that you brought, you, you, you've brought to this um, from the get-go, Rafiat. Um, I see you, El Presidente. Um, I just want to, before I give you the mic, read some of the comments that have come through in response to this question. We have Alicia who says she sees, you know, the the, the Aguji as black warrior women, which is essentially what they were. And they took it very seriously. And they took a lot of pride in that, regardless of where it was channeled in, you know, they were black warrior women. 
um, Sonia sees them as women trained to fight and not to set policy. And that's something to keep in mind as well. Um, the, the Agoji didn't cause the slave trade to start. Um, there is evidence actually that they started out as elephant hunters. So people involved in feeding their villages, you know, providing food and material for trade. And then that, that energy, that skill was channeled into this because they became part of the palace organization. So to, so to an extent, um, there was a disenfranchisement that happened you know, in them becoming part of the palace organization. And we'll talk about that, right? Um, because something the movie does is give the impression that there was an opt-in and opt-out. Not quite. <laughs> Not quite. So we'll talk about that. So, um, but just seeing them as human, and that's what Jim talks about, you know, they were powerful women, but also human. And if nothing else, I hope that is what we take away from this conversation and understanding of these women as, you know, powerful, you know, involved in a lot, responsible for a lot, but also human, you know, disenfranchised to some extent. All right, El Presidente, let's, let's hear what you have to say. Hi, can you, can you hear us? So I see you have your speaker on. Maybe you have some trouble connecting. All right, we're going to keep going. Um, and then if, if things work out, then we'll have you come in and contribute. So the, the next question, comment, or invitation for reflection that I have is to to think about these women, right, and the life that they actually had. Because a lot of the accounts about them came from people who met them on the battlefield. So um, a lot of the conversation about them doesn't go into what they were, who they were, and what they did away from the the, the battlefield. And uh Pan-African Kitty, I see your comment and I'm really glad you raised that point, you know, with seeing them so sympathetically is similar to the famous Nazi guard excuse. And that that is a very important point, right? Because the fact that the person is human, the fact that we're trying to be compassionate doesn't mean we downplay the reality or the horror of some of the things that they participated in, you know, Gladly, in many cases, same as with the, the Nazi guards, you know, they were soldiers, they were following orders, but they participated, they did participate. So let's, let's not, let's not downplay that. And that's, that's one of the things that this, I'm hoping we, we, we dig into a little bit more with this, with this conversation, because it's the woman king or the king's women. There was a play between power and vulnerability, because women were not powerless in the kingdom of Dahomey, far from it. Far from it. If you read the story of, you know, some of the women in positions of leadership, they were ruthless. <laughs> you know, let's be real. These were some ruthless ass women. So let's let's not, you know, infantilize or, you know, take away the capacity for brutality, you know. Um, but still, it's a human thing, right? 
it's a human thing. And that's the tightrope we're walking, um, acknowledging the humanity, but also, you know, seeing the brutality for what it was. Um, let's try again with El Presidente. And while we do that, I'm going to turn to you for commentary on this, Rafiat, because I, I want us to go a little bit into what palace life was like for, for these women and how that might have influence some of the, the the activities that we see by women and by the kingdom of Dahomey. Um, so digging into palace life. But before we do that, let's let's see if um, El Presidente can, can speak now. Can you unmute yourself? Yes, yeah, sure. Am I audible? Yes, yes, we can hear you. Thank you. Okay. I I I I it's very interesting. Interesting times and I mean the timing was perfect. But it's there's something there's so much we need to consider, right? The purpose mm -hmm. for the you know the story being written, the timing in every single thing. So I believe when Black Panther came out and all of these um, um, tribes and cultures were exhibited and people got to know of them, there was this kind of um, feeling where a lot of people, a lot of Africans in the diaspora started, you know, feeling connected to the continent, started feeling connected to Afrocentrism. There was a movement going on. And so I felt, you know, the script writers felt the need to write a story on one of the tribes, and they did. But there's something that Hollywood does, and Hollywood has done since its existence. It promotes propaganda, right? It's all agenda. Mm -hmm. It has done this since its inception. It's not just there for entertainment. These guys put in subliminal messages and direct messages mm -hmm. to control, you know, the minds of the people and, you know, program them a certain way. And that's exactly what is being done with this particular movie. I personally, with history, do not trust any narrative coming from, you know, the Westerners or the whites or the colonialists or, you know, the descendants of these people. I trust history that is coming from the locals themselves and many a times when you compare the history that comes from the locals to that of the westerners you realize that there, there is a lot of contradiction mm. i am tempted honestly to go to the cinema right now because apparently it's being showed in um, i mean kumasi ghana like apparently they are showing it in the cinemas so i'm going to check because i'm very curious i really want to know so i i totally understand right I feel like mm -hmm. the story has been deliberately written to make these women who, you know, probably some other girls or, you know, younger women would look up to and be inspired by, they've been portrayed to make them look guilty or something I feel a lot of people are not considering the factors. In my opinion, the white man did not come to trade in, in a friendly matter. They came with brutal force. And that's how they've been operated since they started, you know, invading places. They've only now decided to put away the brutal force because people are aware globally of humanity and the need to protect humanity so now they don't use brutal force they do it behind closed doors by mm -hmm. putting you know puppets puppets in place puppets in the, in the in the form of leaders in place and controlling them so i don't i find it very hard to believe that even if these people were following orders they did it out of like complete will like they just decided to offer you know, the white man, black people, I feel like there was a lot of things we need to consider the, the situation. Why were, why was there a need for human, human labor in the first place, right? What was there a need for a, the market in the first place? And we also need to consider the powers and the forces behind these um, um, 
people that were commanded to do these things. I am yet to actually go find more historical data. I don't trust the sources I'm getting online because a lot of them are written, obviously, by Wikipedia and these white people behind the internet that are feeding our minds with misinformation. So I am on my way. I'm getting ready to, this, to go to the cinema. I'll go watch. I'll be listening to the conversation. I just basically wanted to say I don't trust anything coming from script writers. And I think the script writer actually admitted that it's a story. So somehow it's not entirely, you know, historical. There's a there's some small, there's always a bit of fiction, you know, they merge mm-hmm. with the entire story. So I don't think it's something we should believe as historical facts. We should just like, um, it's agenda basically, yeah. Mm-hmm. Thank you for, you know, that, meaty bit of information that you've you've put on the table there is there's a lot to dissect there there is a lot to dissect there um and dissect we will let's let's do this does anybody in the room have a reaction to what um el presidente just shared and remember everybody is in um everybody is in listener mode so when you finish speaking i'll put you back in listener mode and um you get the opportunity to speak when you indicate that you want to speak all right any any reactions to what was just shared all right savior i go ahead savior president has said um i'm gonna start with saying I haven't watched the movie. I haven't read um, anything, to be fair, on um, the Agoges or um, anything. I haven't read anything. So a lot of what I'm saying is coming from assumptions. So it's not going to be something that I'm going to say, because my, my I'm saying this because I could change my opinion after reading, because I don't like um, saying, talking about things I have no information about. But I agree with El Presidente on how information is being um is being distributed because since time immemorial, from um anthropology to history books to everything, anything the Europeans in the past, I can't because I don't do the whole the scenes of the father and the son bullshit. No, it's when you benefit from it. That is a whole conversation. What I'm trying to say is this: anything most European authors wrote in the past was was uh, written in such a way it enhanced white supremacy in some form or way or pattern. And that's why I agree with her in saying, you want to know what really happened, go to the source, go to the people mm-hmm. who experience this, who have ancestors in this, and like go to the source, go to the primary source and get as many primary sources as you can, then compare and contrast, and you're going to find some bits of truth in there. So that's um, the part I agree with. At some point, I'm I'm gonna watch the Woman King, but I can't even right now. My wife, my mother-in-law, um, my stepdaughter. So gonna they they are going to do a whole mother-daughter, you know, Woman King watching festival. So they're gonna watch that. I'm gonna hear their whole reaction. Thank you, thank you, Savior, for for the comments, and it's it's exciting that you know it's going to be. Uh, family affair. I hope they enjoy the movie. Um, 
And I, I can't wait to hear your thoughts. Thank you for acknowledging, you know, where the, the place you were speaking from. Um, so just keeping in mind that we, the, the, after this, after this, we finish with this um, conversation, the next thing we're going to delve into is what palace life was like, you know, based on what we know in the historical sources. But speaking of historical sources, to, to make a short response to what um, uh, uh, El Presidente and Xavier just said, it's, it's very important to approach, you know, information with, you know, reasonable doubt, you know, to not believe everything. However, um, there is a lot that um, is known about the kingdom of Dahomey and its activities that is not from the Europeans, right? Um, I attended a conference yesterday, or at least I caught part of a conference yesterday um, organized by Princeton, which brought in scholars from uh, Benin, which is, you know, the former uh, kingdom of Dahomey. And one thing I can tell you, you know, what is documented in historical sources, of course, has European bias, but the truth of the kingdom of Dahomey's existence, the truth of the palace organization, the truth of Dahomey's involvement in the slave trade, the truth of the Agoje being, you know, warriors of a kind that, you know, people had not seen before, um, the reality of the brutality of the slave trade is at this point, we really don't have any reason to question that anymore. Um, I think there was some controversy about this movie in particular involving Lupita Nyong'o, who traveled to Benin, went to the palace, visited these places. And out of that, that experience, you know, my understanding is that she declined to be part of this movie because like um, myself and Rafiad and whole other people, it, it became hard to see these women as heroes, um, as heroines, because just of the reality of what they, they experience. So yes, please come to it with, with, with reasonable doubt, with a healthy skepticism. Um, but at the same time, you know, don't, don't let that skepticism push you over, over the edge because black people didn't arrive in the Americas, you know, because they showed up at the ocean and asked the Europeans to transport them. There was, there was an economic cycle at work there. And just like now, you had people, Africans, willing to participate in it, right? So let's let's make sure that this is well understood. Um, okay, backing off from here, and I, I don't know if Rafiad, you have any anything to add to this before we, you know, delve into your knowledge of the palace and all of that. Um, no. But I, I do actually, I mean, I, I understand because I do also have my my dose of skepticism when it comes to um, European sources. Um, obviously not on the topic, as you've said, but as, as to how they portrayed these, um, um, like these cultures. I, I read a lot of these things, a lot of like missionary journals and all of that. So I can, I know that, you know, there was definitely an agenda in how mm -hmm. these, some of these stories were being compiled. And you can even see it as they are reading it. You know, you can see the way they talk about the Africans that are living up around them, you know, that welcome mm -hmm. them in their homes. But for me personally, I like to also temper that by reading, um, reading or just going towards Black scholars, you know, whether mm -hmm. African or like from the diaspora of African-American, you know, because there are people doing this research as well who mm -hmm. are from these societies. 
And then even outside that, I'm also um, a fan of oral histories, you know, just going to the people who have kept knowledge because I mean, in many, many West African societies, there are groups of people who, who's basically their job was to remember history and mm-hmm. to recount and basically, I mean, some had um, like they wrote history down, but others, it was literally just a matter of keeping the oral history in their heads. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I like to, in my mind, when I approach history, it's like a Venn diagram in a way where like, there are these circles, some are intersecting and some are not. So on, on the one hand, we have the colonial records. On the other hand, we have the um, current contemporary scholars who are visiting these histories, bringing their own perspectives. And on the third um, like circle, we have we have the oral sources of history, mm-hmm. and then through all these, you know, we're able to form, I guess, as as much of a balanced understanding of history as we can, knowing mm-hmm. that everybody still has their own sort of agenda in a way, and everyone has their biases. I mean, I have my biases when I'm reading history. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the like I started questioning how I approach colonial texts because I mean, when when we read about those cultures that we're talking about, you know, women in like parts of what is now Nigeria, like they had all these rights, they could divorce men if they felt that they were not um, treating them the way they wanted to be treated. They were working, they were amassing wealth that they give onto their children, and we see that. I don't believe that. But when we see the same source saying how, like, you know, in this community they forced um, children to be betrothed to like much older men and they are painting this negative, like um, this negative view of a, of a certain group of people. And then I found myself questioning, okay, why is it okay for you to accept the positivity? Mm. Um, but like when they're talking about the ugly parts, it's like, oh, this is a colonial man, mm-hmm. he's an anthropologist and he definitely had um, an agenda, right? So th- I think it was when I when I started, and this was years ago, probably 2009, 2008. When I saw myself doing that, I was like, okay, white, you need to sit and <laughs> and like approach or just think about your approach as to how you come across um, history. But I mean, in the most recent years, I've mostly been relying on um, oral sources, literally mm-hmm. just speaking to people, um, speaking to people and hearing from them what they heard from their grandparents and their great-grandparents and using that to form um, my approach to what, um, to these like um, t- topics regarding women in West African history. Thank you. Thank you so much for putting a lot of that in context. And something you said, Rafiad, which I think is really, really important, right? is that, yes, we should absolutely question European sources because sometimes you, you read these sources and the, just the condescension that these people had for communities that welcome them, it's clear. You know, you know that that bias is always there. But also to be mindful of your own biases, right? Because a lot of us, you know, given the oppression and the suppression that Black people have experienced, we go into these things with expectations and biases of our own, which if we are not careful can become a hindrance. Just like you said, why is it easy for me to believe and accept the positive things that were said about the community and have such a strong reaction to the negative things? This this is especially dissonant for me because I was born and raised in Cameroon, which is a West African country. I only moved to the U.S. when I was 20. So for the first 20 years of my life, the face of my oppression was black, you know, the the community that, you know, caused 
the traumas that have shaped most of my life is black. So it, let, let's not approach history and the accounts as if, you know, we, we as black people, we as women are incapable of, of some of the things that we, we attribute to oppression or oppressive forces, you know, of bias, of, of you know, um, prejudice or violence. It, it's, that's a very important awareness to keep as we navigate this, because when it comes down to it, this is the human experience, right? This is the human experience that we're moving through with its ups and downs, pluses and negatives. It's it's a human thing, and that that is something that we all have in common. And it's it's so important to to keep that in perspective. And the the other side of this is that you know, even when the sources are African, you know, they they are not free from complication either. I think it was with you I had this conversation, Rafiat, where I was uh, digging into the Sondieta epic and uh, the, the, the griot who preserves this history in the Malinke tradition, they tend to be men. You might be interested all to know that in the kingdom of Dahomey, the person charged with keeping a record of the kingdom's history was actually a woman. So just, you know, a preview of the palace organization that we'll talk about. Um, but, you know, this griot was talking about how, you know, talking to people, hey, don't go prying into Africa's history. Don't go digging up old goals. Let, you know, the bones of the ancestors rest and something, something. And, you know, coming up in an African community, my first reaction was like, you know, that's, that's, I should really pay attention to this. You know, you should be careful around ancient things, you know, respect ancestors and everything. And then, you know, it was like electricity going into my brain, like, wait a minute, wait a minute. If this person had been the spokesperson for the King of France, for Napoleon, for example, or, you know, some British king or some Portuguese king, I would have been like, oh, hell no. I will pry into the past. I want to know what's going on there. I'm not going to take your word for it just because you speak for kings or because you, no, 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 no. You know, to, to get an understanding of history and where I am right now, nothing, nothing can be above question. Nothing can be above careful, fair observation. And I think that is the spirit that will help us the most navigate these difficult issues because things will swing one way and they will swing another. And here we are all in the midst of it as imperfect humans trying to make sense. And sometimes the failures are great and they have long, 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 long um, consequences that reach into the future. And that's, that's something that we can't, we can't take lightly. So that being said, let's talk a bit about the, the women at the palace, right? The Ahosi, of whom the Agoji were a subset. Um, I'm going to, you know, invite you into this, Rafiad, and lean a little bit on your 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 knowledge of the history. So, the the Agoji, as we've we've uh, established, were the warriors, right? The women who went to war. There were men who went to war. Um, but something that is peculiar or worth noting about the Dahomean state structure is that they you had the king, but then you had the palace organization that formed around the king. And that that palace organization was influenced by the, the, the cosmological beliefs of the, the Fon people who contribute constitute the majority of the of who Dahomeans were. 
So what that meant was that you had the king, but you also had the pojito, the woman king, as it was called, who was complementary to the king. Um, and then in each position, at least for a good part of the, 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 the kingdom's history, each position of male position of influence had its female contemporary, its female um, equivalent. But around that was this palace organization, which constituted mostly of women who were married to the king. And this was not a marriage that you could get out of, right? So in many parts of uh, many African communities, you could marry and if the, you were not being treated well, you could go back to your husbands. It was true for Dahomeans. It was true for the Yoruba and many other African peoples. But marriage to the king wasn't something you could just leave, you know, if you were not being treated well. And that is why many, many Dahomean women themselves were not too keen to get married to the king. Um, Sorry, can I cut in? Yes. I just... Um... I want to emphasize that this marriage is not like the marriage we're thinking about <laughs> like right now where it's like, you know, we have one man or one woman or one man or multiple women. Right. Marriage was, um, I mean, from my understanding, was also kind of symbolic in a way <laughs> where the king is regarded as um, obviously the ruler of all. So if you are, a, I mean, not you, but if one is a servant to the king, and is inducted into the palace life, they became a quote-unquote wife of the king. So it wasn't only women that were wives. And it could be men. And it wasn't always like, you know, the king was going to, like, have to um, sleep with all his wives. You know, it was also just a station. And, and, you know, as Helen has been saying, um, obviously this is a king, so it's not something that you can back up. It's more of like a contract. Mm -hmm. And then we also see these... um, we, we also see, like, in other cultures where, I'm speaking for myself as a Yoruba person, you know, the, the use of the term wife or yawo is not necessarily meant just in, just for, you know, a bride and a groom. You know, when people are initiated into, like, certain Orisha um, societies, they become, like, wives of the deity, whether you're a man, whether you're a woman, right? So it wasn't, I just wanted to just emphasize that, you know, it, it's not, like, marriage as you would think of it this Uh is a different understanding of marriage so go ahead no no thank you thank you so much for for emphasizing that because there is that um there is a word i'm looking for here which is escaping but there is there is like a contextual understanding of a term and being married to the king you know it's not like you enter into a romantic relationship with the king or anything like that of course he had his favorites right and the women who bore him princes and all of that but it was you know i've I've been thinking about this and the size of the palace organization because these wives of the king the men and the women were in the thousands right it wasn't just you know a a harem of maybe 50 women no this was a big it was almost like an administration for lack of a better way of putting it it was like an administration and in Mm -hmm. order to become part of this administration you had to become a quote-unquote wife of the king and it was a in effect a declaration of loyalty right if not to the king you know the person who was in place to the institution right but as as you know as you do the reading something you'll find out is that there there you know there was a lot of fluidity in these in these you know movements because it wasn't a case necessarily where it was you know 
always within very strict structures. There were people constantly being added and removed from this, this you know, administration, this palace organization. And it, it, it was an interesting study in, you know, not having freedom, but also having freedom. Because once you join this organization, and it wasn't just Dahomians who joined, right? War captives, you know, people came from, you know, gifts from, from, from other kingdoms, you know, people, wives who were sent by other kings for, to form alliances. It was a mix and match. But once you became a member of the organization, you were then presented with an opportunity to use your knowledge, your skills, and your resourcefulness to, to thrive as best as you can. So, and that is why you had a situation where um, a person could enter literally as a slave you know, and end up in a position of high influence because when it came down to it in these palace, this palace organization, it was what you could do. If you read the sources, a lot of the pojitos, who were the wives of the king, started out in very lowly positions and then rose to prominence because they showed, you know, knowledge. Like the impression I get from reading the sources is that the, the palace organization valued knowledge, valued skill, valued um, um, know-how and how that could be put in the service of the king. And it's so important to see this as a mechanism through which women who at that point in history, you know, with European influence, the status of women was really changing in many parts of the African continent, right? Um, communities where women were, you know, revered, that was changing due to this influence. So to have this structure, which it was egalitarian and I use that word with you know biting my tongue a little bit um it, it offered opportunity that you could you know it was it was chaos is a ladder if you know that expression right it was a chaos ladder that you could raise climb to the top or you could you know stay at the bottom it just depended on who you formed coalitions with who you lended your support with and there was a lot going on there in that in that regard and women women were the, the, the fulcrum around which this seemed to turn because there was a time in Dahomey where to even talk to the king, right? You had this woman who you would tell her what you wanted to tell the king and she would tell the king. So whatever she told the king is what she told the king regardless of what you told her. And that, that is power. That is power. Um, there, there were various offices in the Dahomian palace which were informed by Dahomian cosmology and in Dahomian cosmology, in font cosmology, there are the creator beings, Mao, the woman, and Lisa, her son. Um, and this pairing is what informed how, you know, Dahomians organized life. So you had the head of the family, but you also had a woman who, you know, because of seniority was able to influence him, but also because women had their own groupings. They could sabotage, you know, whatever the men had going on. So it was it was a, a, a play of power which had, you know, expressions in the family unit, in the community unit, all the way up to the palace. And it is out of this that the, the Agoji, you know, the, the warrior unit came out of because um, there was the fact that, you know, slave trading was affecting populations population numbers and everything so it turns out sometimes that there were just more women available and of course Dahomey was a military state right part of their 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 existence power drive came from conquest for land resources and people who they used to grow their state so they needed people who would go out and fight the, the king needed protection and everything so um 
this was the context out of which the agoji came and then you know because of how things worked out they forged themselves into this into this fighting unit which is what we we know from history with what we know from history so regardless of how well not regardless keeping in mind how it it ended up you know the directions in which this resilience was funneled um there is something to note there something to offer as far as having um an understanding of possibility you know what could happen because um something i came away from this movie with was you know the movie offered a vision of what might have been but it's also you know inspiration for what could be you know it's possible to have a structure where the contributions of women are valued as much as the contribution from of men and women are rewarded and you know held up as much as the men are held up if nothing else that homey had to offer they had this to offer in a tangible way and that's that's noteworthy but then it doesn't take away from the brutality right from the reality of it and that's something that um, one of the main criticisms of the movie is that they they kind of watered this down a little bit so let us let us stop here and just get some reactions from the room based on what you know has been revealed about the paris organizations um what rafiat shared about um you know what what life really was like you know what it means to be a wife of the king um any thoughts questions reactions to this and again everybody's in listener mode if you have something to say you can put your hand up or if you look in the bottom right hand corner of the space there is a chat where you can um you can drop your comments there any any other thoughts on this rafiat Oh, yes, I was just about to jump in while we wait for um, any other comments. I think what I found fascinating about um, the structure of this kingdom and the women in it was, you know, you mentioned the Pujito, um there, and then we have the, I would say, like the wives of the king. We also had the princesses who mm-hmm. were like a very, you know, <laughs> a very serious force on their own. I remember like when I first started reading about, about, basically the place of women in some of these African societies. So literally because, you know, sometimes you come, and I might not be the only one, but I was coming across these images of, like, kings from, like, black and white images, obviously, taken by um, colonizers. And I noticed that they were always surrounded by women. Like, there were always women around them. Mm-hmm. And the first sort of, like, instinct was like, oh, my God, okay, the king has many wives, so that's why... You know, there are these women around them, and that was what led me down like the rabbit hole. And I started learning about the positions these women occupied in the palace structure. Um, so outside the the queen mothers and the the wives of the king, who could um, who were you know sometimes slaves, sometimes offered to the king in that manner. I think the princesses are very interesting because they were possibly the only group that were born in privilege. Uh-huh. You know, they were born in the palaces. They had these privileges that they grew up with. And they seemed to have, like, more of a... Like, I guess maybe it's because they were born into it that they were very aware of their privileges and they would <laughs> use them, you know, to push... To also to basically push and pull and to play in politics as mm-hmm. well. Mm-hmm. So that was what I was going to add. Just the princesses and all their dramas. 
For sure, for sure. And I'm glad you highlighted that because in the course of the readings, the 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 role that the princesses play really stood out, right? Because like you said, this was one group of people who um, were sort of part of the palace and they, they were Ahovi. So these were children of the palace in the lack for lack of a better way of put, putting it. And they were different from Ahosi. And the Ahovi, you know, played a very important role in 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 Dahomian life in general, there is a clip I did. There you go on Dahomian princesses. I'm going to share that in here. It's in the thread from the Wives of the Leopard book, and that will really give you a sense of just the the the, the dynamic of you know being a child of the palace, being a wife in the palace, and the the way they wielded power. And it, it was a real thing, you know. Um, there is evidence that many of these princesses, depending on who the king was, were named to positions where even though they had male counterparts, these princesses had more power than the male counterpart um, by virtue of being close to, you know, being affiliated with the royal family. There was a time in Dahomean history when the king was still consolidating power, so it made sense to name family members to certain positions. And, you know, it wasn't a question of whether you were man or woman. If you were available and you were capable, you were named. And, you know, people would take these and run. And, you know, coalitions were formed around naming the next king. Um, it It's, I remember we talked about this in the conversation, Rafiat. Palace intrigue and drama in Dahomey. Westeros has, I mean, let's not even go into a fictional, you know, kingdom. Just good old European monarchy Wahala has nothing on Dahomey. It was mm. it was something else. <laughs> you know mm. it was something else. The intrigue, the machinations, the manipulations, the you know, moving things along, the assassinations, like mm. it was crazy. It was crazy. Mm. Good crazy and bad crazy for sure. Yes. I remember like also part of why I I was doubly fascinated by what was going on was I think around that era was when I was very like I was deeply into watching like those 60 something episode Chinese dramas about Mm -hmm. women in the palaces and the concubines of the emperor and all the drama that was happening there and I remember thinking like okay this could they could make a film out of what was happening Mm -hmm. in what in Dahomey at that time right no absolutely Um, yeah, and you know, years later, I think it's almost over a decade later, we now have a movie about it, but obviously not about the princesses. Mm. But yeah, and then it's also like when you were mentioning like all the intrigue and all of that that happened in the palace, you know, it literally just trying to make sure that their brother or their son would uh-huh. become the next king. I think what also stood out to me was how like they would sell some of like like for example when the two rival um, royal factions when one rose up to become the king i think it happened to gezo's predecessor <laughs> where like he sold gezo's mother um to europeans so it struck me that you know this sort of like the, the participation in the slave trade was also as some form of punishment in a way <laughs> for people who did not um for basically losers in the political intrigue or political um, <laughs> warfare. And wh- wh- why that struck me is because, I mean, we hear a lot of um, of pushback where um, people say, that, oh, you know, in the past, they were not aware of what was going on, like, you know, in 
like to the Africans that were sold um, to the Americas. And when I read things like that, I'm like, I think they, they, some people were definitely aware um, to use that as some form of um, punishment. Mm-hmm. And I'm glad you bring that up, right? Because there, there is a passage going about where a king is denying the fact that um, the Homeans sold, you know, other people into slavery. And whenever I read that passage, I've not investigated it personally. Um, it goes back to that comment I made about you can't just take something someone is saying because the person is African or because the person is a king. There is a lot of evidence to show that, you know, the Dahomeans were very resistant to selling their own. But when it came down to it, they would do it, even if you were a royal. <laughs> like being a member of the royal family did not in any way protect you when it came down to it. And you're absolutely right. Um, you would have fighting factions of you know people wanting to install their own king and the losers i kid you not either all got slaughtered or they got sold it was a bloody violent kingdom let's not beat around the bush when it comes to that right it was you know it makes me think of the the scene from uh the game of thrones where um what's his face you know says knowledge is power and cersei laughs and says power is power right if you're able to grab it and hold on to it, then it is yours. That's how things, when it came down to it, that's how things worked in Dahomey. From the time when a king died to when the next king was installed, it took usually a year. And during that year, it was power struggle, you know, violent, like people would die, you guys. You had these women who were trained to fight and fight they did. You know, it was a, a power struggle in the realest sense of the word. And then whoever ended up king, consolidated power, did what he did to make sure that, you know, things were settled. And then life continued, which, you know, is what happens in monarchies all over the world. You know, we open Europe's chapter here. You know, it's not going to be much different. You open Asian chapters all over the world. This is what happened in other African kingdoms. And and that's something that I hope we take away from this, you know, to, to Pan-African Kitty's point. Let's not soften it so much we excuse their behavior, but let's not make them an exception either. When it comes down to it, the kingdom of Dahomey was doing what all kingdoms do. And the warriors of Dahomey, male and female, were doing what warriors in all kingdoms do. We look at the parallels in the U.S. today. Yes, the U.S. Army is, you know, for many people around the world, not a liberatory force. You know, they are oppressors. They are occupiers for many people. However, if we look at who is in the U.S. Army, you have children born of privilege, right? Generals, generations, army families and all of that. But you also have, you know, young kids for whom joining the army is the best way to upward mobility. And that's what it is. You know, some people join with the best of intentions. Some people join with, you know, different intention that and they become part of the reality of the world that they live in and that was as true for the people of Dahomey as it is true today and if if nothing else I want us to come away with that because the the conversation on social media can really flatten these people into one-dimensional characters who were just fighters killers slave raiders and whatever and that is far 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 from the only thing that they were right so, whew, all right, a lot that has gone on there. Any thoughts, questions, comments? Um, so we, we, we are one hour into the discussion and mythological African spaces tend to last for an hour. Um, if this is the only time you have available, please, um, it's been just such a pleasure to have you in the room. So if you need to take off, um, by all means, but I intend to keep this going till at least three or 3.30-ish 
because I have other things I need to go do. So we'll, we'll talk for as long as we can. And then, you know, when everybody is tired or we've run out of things to talk about, we'll, we'll go ahead and, and end things. So, so far, we have, um, you know, talked a little bit about the movie because we've, um, we understand that not everybody in the room has watched the movie. So we've given a quick overview of what the story is about. We've, you know, been very clear that this movie is not an accurate representation of what actually happened in the kingdom of Dahomey. So if you're going to watch the movie, just keep that in mind. You're not going to see a historical account. It's not a documentary. It's a story that borrows from history. We've talked about the, the, the palace organization, you know, out of which the Agoje came, the reality of, of what that was. Um, and we've talked about the dynamics of, you know, navigating history, historical sources, what to trust, what not to trust, and what, what uh, an attitude we might take towards these conflicting sources um, to make sure that we arrive at a place of truth, but also at a place of, you know, looking at these stories with, with compassion and seeing the humans underneath all of this struggle, right? Um, let's, let's do this. Um, let's pause for questions, comments, reactions, thoughts, and then we'll, we'll delve into the next topic. If none, I see that, um, I see that, there was a comment from Alicia talking about watching the movie and how it definitely had an agenda and how yet that was um, inspirational. And I, I wanted to circle back to this because there is no story that is agenda free, right? Um, stories are how we make sense of the world. And I don't think that any human being instinctively has the capacity to be so objective and so detached that you just tell a story. A story, whatever story you tell, will always reflect, you know, the intention with which you come in. So you, it's propaganda, you know, let's not quibble about that. Um, but propaganda has different purposes, for lack of a better way of putting it. And um, I, what I came from this movie, right, because, again, I read a lot before I went in. So I was talking about this with Rafia. There were moments where I was just sitting there rolling my eyes like, are you people for real? Come on now. <laughs> like, come on. Like, really? This is what we're mm -hmm. going to do? But, you know, I, I still was able to see the movie, at least this is my interpretation, as an offering, right, to say, hey, this is what might have been. This is what still could be. And that's, that's how I took it. So maybe the propaganda worked on me. Maybe that, that agenda, you know, came through. But it's from a place of not taking this as history. I know for a fact that this movie is hardly a reflection of history. Um, so acknowledging Alicia's comment, acknowledging Jim's comment that the facts seldom correspond with the story we want to tell. And that's something absolutely, absolutely important to keep in mind as well. Um, the other comment um, I saw was from, uh, was it here? I know. Uh, da -da -da. Sorry, you guys. I just want to make sure that I get to everybody. It was a comment about uh, the Agoji themselves and how they came to be in the palace. Um, how they came to be in the palace. Uh, da -da -da. 
that sorry i think i may have lost it but i'm going to touch on it anyway because it's it's an important um it's an important thing to keep in mind you know how these women arrived at the palace influences who they became and this is the, the question was that you know some people believe that the the agoji just were like kids abandoned by their mothers or you know taken to the palace and left there and to some extent, yes, there are stories of recalcitrant daughters being sent to the palace, but the Agoji in particular, there is evidence that a lot of them were recruited from amongst war captives because it's believed that, you know, your whole village has been slaughtered. You have no family, you know, loyalty. You are able to give your loyalty to, to, the, to the king. You know, you can be trusted that way because as Rafiat pointed out, a lot of the people who had power were trying to, you know, manipulate things so that they, they ended up in a favorable position. So it was believed that these girls, because they had no family affiliations, could be loyal to the king. And sometimes they were very young, right? We have to keep in mind that what who was considered an adult in past society is not who we would consider an adult now. So the decisions that they were expected to take, they were being taken with the same brains that we now know um, up into your 20s is not yet fully, fully formed to make certain decisions. So that's, that's something to keep in mind because imagine if you, you know, you're a war captive after that trauma, first of all, you get sent to the palace. It's virtually inescapable. You can't go anywhere. And then you're, you know, you have the chance to find a way to make yourself useful, find some meaning in your life. The human res resilience is such that you you more than likely will accept that. And then if it gives you some power in a way, you will embrace that with your whole heart. You know, and I think that is what happened for many of the Agoji, right? Women who like like uh, there is a line in the movie where um, something was going on. I don't want to you know disrupt the movie, but one of the war captive women, she said, you know, out there outside of the palace walls, because they were really restricted to the palace. Outside of there, I am prey. At least in here, I can be predator. And that's, that's, something, that's something worth um, keeping in mind, because the, the decisions who these women became didn't happen out of a vacuum. Any, any comments on that, uh, Rafiat, or anybody else? Oh, yes, it's a good point you've made about, you know, who they became not existing in a vacuum. I mean, obviously, without having the ability to go back in time and see how they were and to, you know, talk to them and figure out, like, what their states of mind, <laughs> states of mind were at that time. Mm -hmm. I really sort of saw it as being, like, you know, in this world, and even in a world where it's literally a dog-eat-dog -dog world, mm -hmm. you know, there's, a, as you've mentioned, you know, there's, there's a lot of, like, trauma in seeing your village being, like, completely wiped down, people being killed, um, and like I think it was you who shared um, Zora Neale Hurston's interview with Kujo mm -hmm. in um, Barakun, right? It was a very violent period, and mm -hmm. I mean, I'm trying to imagine, you know, being a a child there, witnessing that, you know, then being recruited into the same army that wiped your own village, and you know, the kind of I mean, now we sort of have more of an understanding of PTSD and trauma, mm -hmm. what that would lead to. And I feel like that may have also fed into the viciousness that, uh, mm -hmm. you know, that these warriors are like renowned for, you know. Um, and then also probably, I also think about, you know, 
just not wanting to be the one eating. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think it's there's a sort of like resilience in human beings that can become very dark mm-hmm. and can just immediately like switch it to negativity if you're not careful mm-hmm. about it. I mean, we, we live in a world with these modern comforts now, but like, and sometimes I read into history and I'm like, I'm glad I was born in this no. era, you know. It's not the best. <laughs> But like at least I know that if I'm going like if I like I don't have to worry about being like attacked when I'm like going to fetch water from the uh-huh. stream or something. I mean, and that's what the crazy. I mean, the the wildest thing is that this stuff actually still happens today in pockets of the world, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's something that um did come to mind. Another thing I wanted to add, like when we're talking about films, I, I don't want to forget to say this, and I don't know if I'm saying this too soon. But like, I, while I understand that, you know, the movie is obviously not a documentary, it has its fictional elements. I'm really glad that it's led to these discussions on history. Because I mean, since that's come out, like literally every day, I'm seeing at least two articles mm-hmm. um, from historians talking about the period, talking about their home, talking about, you know, their goji, talking about the palace. And I'm like, I, I really appreciate that because I mean, even though, the film is might not be historically accurate. We're getting historically accurate accounts. And I feel like more people are talking about this kingdom, more people are talking about this era of history than would have been if this movie did not come out, right? Um, another point I wanted to make was, you know, I mentioned those Chinese um, palace dramas that I used to be, like, huge fans of. I, I would still watch them. I just don't have the time to, like, devote <laughs> that many hours to watching um series anymore. But, like... You know, I think I've always said about these things having an agenda. And it was something that I came, like, it took a while for me to fully accept, especially when it comes to history. I, I many years ago, I met a Nigerian creator who just kept talking about how there is a need for us to basically make Nigerian history sexy. And mm-hmm. I pushed back against this. I was like, no, we need to be historically accurate. And he's like, no, we do not. We just need to make it look good. And we need to make people feel good about their history, like whether it's accurate or not, right? And I, I was like, to me, it's like, you know, that is something that I fundamentally disagreed with because I'm very much one for, I want to make this as historically accurate as possible. Even mm. when I read um, historical, historical novels, there's a new outgoing of um, romance novels set in like historically African, I've read some from Ghana, I've read some from Nigeria, you know, and I'm always like, okay, but in this co- in this kingdom, did this happen then? In this kingdom, did happen then? You know, and then I just had to like <laughs> reach a point where I'm like, you know what? Let's be, you know, I it might not be the most, I guess, morally correct thing to do, but like if it can lead to us having discussions about mm-hmm. like what really happened, I think that's a plus. And then circling back to the Chinese um um palace dramas, you know, they really portray um the 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 court the imperial court the imperial harem as this very like glorious um beautiful clothing beautiful hair you know everything is even though there's all this intrigue happening mm-hmm. it's still portrayed as a very complex yet stunning society mm-hmm. and I remember like seeing memes I forgot the name of that um drama I watched but like they they put like a photo of the actresses and they compared it to a photo of like the real women who lived mm-hmm. there and they were like it was like night and day mm-hmm. you know and then i recently read a book um that all touched on um on life in this imperial palace and it was just very very different so it showed a very dark time the mm-hmm. emperor was 
like uh, i mean i don't want to go into details because it will require a trigger warning but like it really showed the darker parts of this and i was like you know why i don't even have to ask why did this not come up in the series because you know they would want to show the parts that glorified the history and that showed okay we are coming from a complex group of people um rather than showing okay these people also did very very disturbing things mm-hmm. right so yeah those are my scattered thoughts so far no thank you thank you so much because you i i and i i feel like you were talking there as a researcher who wants to be faithful to history but also as a an extremely gifted storyteller. So, by the way, you guys, Rafiat writes some of the best, like, African culture, folklore, mythology oh, thank you. stories. <laughs> like, she has this story, right? It's, like, historical, but also futuristic, where it's, like, this nanny who is a robot, you like, program, but she's in Rapa. Like, if you're African, you know, you, you, you feel the thing in your body. Like, she writes beautiful stories. And I, I think... Your, your comment there was coming from that place of, okay, I want to tell a good story. I want to tell a beautiful story. I want to tell a story that will make people feel good, but I also want to be true to history. And it, mm-hmm. it's that, that, that balance of, okay, how to do this? Because as you saw with the Chinese drama, it was a brutal, brutal, vicious time. But it doesn't change the fact that, you know, things still happen in these palaces that made people happy. Children were born you know, love affairs happened. There was mercy in some cases. There was compassion and understanding. All of that layered with the brutality. And that is something that I think that, you know, while we 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 put the bitter bitterness of these experiences on our tongue, we can keep the sweet there too, right? Because otherwise we're not we're not being fair one way or another. We could tell the stories that emphasize the terrible things because we want to be true. We want to be, you know, accurate. Um, but we can also balance that out with stories that that emphasize the good. As long as we're not leaning too far in one direction, and that is that is a that is where I am with this with this movie in particular. Right? It's it's not historically accurate, you know, even just beyond the story, there are aspects of the movie, just things that were possible and things were just not possible, like scenes, setting, actions, like there are just some things that given what we know about geography and physics and chemistry are just not possible, you know, but they still show up in the movie. Um, But if it's in the service of telling a story that provokes discussions like we're having now, then, you know, there there can be space there because there is no one story that Hollywood is going to tell that is going to erase the fact of history, right? Like, like Rafia pointed out, there has been so much discussion about the kingdom of Dahomey because of this movie, which, you know, is what it is. But we're having these rich discussions, conferences, Twitter spaces, um, uh, essays, reflections. I am willing to bet there's going to be art and poetry and music and so much more. And if this movie is commercially successful, which it's looking like it will be, and I'm happy for that, um, doors open for more nuanced and complex stories to be told. My my big hope is that after this, you know, when when it's clear how possible African stories can be, we will get to have what Europeans got to have after World War One and World War Two. Because World War One and World War Two was essentially these people brutally killing each other willy-nilly for the most 
series of causes, right? But think about the art that has come out of that, the, the treaties, the understanding, the, the peering into the psyche of Europeans and understanding what motivated them, whether they were Nazis or whatever. There's been so much that we have learned about the human condition from taking those topics seriously. We deserve that too on the African continent. And we are the only ones who can really give ourselves that. You know, we, we feel how we feel about the Dahomeans and the Agoji and everything. But one thing I thought about as we were preparing for this is that if German people can walk around this world with their heads held high, then, you know, we can exist in a world where Dahomey is not completely, you know, portrayed as terrible and bad. And that's something that came up in, the, in a discussion yesterday where you had scholars from Benin, um, and other parts of the world who met at Princeton to talk about the movie. And it was a clear statement of this movie is not true to history. However, there is an opportunity here. You know, there was a discussion about how uh, people in Benin sometimes don't even identify with the kingdom of Dahomey because that's, that's, they, they don't know that kingdom. That kingdom was destroyed for Benin as it is not to exist. So you have this cultural tie to this entity that has so much emotional and psychological weight on it, but you're, you don't really feel connected to it because your reality now you know, is, is different. And if you read some of the books that we talk about, you see how that happened because the kingdom of Dahomey was essentially taken apart by the French. And it, it's just a horrific thing to witness how French policies, French people trying to make sense of the world for themselves, influenced how their colonies were treated, how policies, you know, just basically rattled everything this kingdom was. And then it reformed into the Republic of Benin, which is its own separate entity, even though it's tied to the kingdom of Dahomey. And it's, it's reflected in how the people see it. So there, there is just so much to unpack here. And we have this because of this movie. So regardless of how you feel about the historical accuracy, it is an opportunity, an opportunity. And I'm so, so, so glad that, you know, we are taking it for what it is while being understanding that, well, there are people who will feel how they feel and we can't deny them that, right? We can't deny them that the antagonism, the, the willingness to boycott, it is what it is. We can have productive discussions as well. So let me step off my high horse here a little bit. Um, open up comments, questions, thoughts. We are about an hour and 30 minutes into, into this discussion. And I'm so glad that you all made time to be here. Rafia, thank you so much again for lending your time and knowledge. Um, we, we wouldn't have the reading list we had, you guys, without, without Rafia's contributions. The two main texts that we gave out as gifts were books that she introduced me to. And true to her, her approach to research, and one of the books was by Laurel Semley, who is an African-American woman, I believe. And she went to uh, Ketu, who, which is like a, a kingdom that was conquered by Dahomey, and did research there and made so many connections, went to Brazil. like, And, and that's what's interesting. Um, so there is this perception that Africa was just there in these things, in these things, in these things, and Africa was not connected to the rest of the world. And that is so not true. Even at the peak of the slave trade, there was back and forth between African countries and Brazil, export of culture, and that has persisted till today. Um, there are there are Iles, you know, um, Orisha uh, houses in Brazil that trace their lines all the way back to Ketu in Yoruba land and other 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 places in Nigeria and in Benin. And that's something which 
you know, it is worth keeping in mind that there was the horror, there was the terror, but there was also seeds of promise and seeds of possibility planted in there. And, you know, we get to know these things because of the work of scholars like Laurel Senby, the work of scholars like Rafiat. And every one of us who is sitting here having this conversation because we are writing the history that the people in the future will 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 be able to participate in. We're recording this session. It will be made publicly available. It will be on the internet forever and ever, hopefully. And, you know, when future generations look back, they will not have this one flattened, you know, one-dimensional understanding of these historical events. They will see what happened, how it was talked about. They will see how we talked about it. And hopefully they will continue to refine their thoughts about it and that will influence how they move in the future. So this, this is something we are we are doing for ourselves. And I'm so glad that you're all here um, doing it with me. So thank you. Uh, Cici? Thank you, Helen. Let me just say that <laughs> quickly. Um, thank you so much um, for your kind words and for hosting um, this space and this um, conversation. And I just wanted to like, how, like also add on to how like amazing I find Laurel Semley. Um, I, I remember in her book, she talked about when she was in K2, like people were actually calling her Iyawa as well, like when she mm -hmm. was um, visiting, and that means bride or a wife. Um, so while she was doing her research, and I really just wanted to see like, reading the works of African-American scholars um, visiting these um, um, West African nations and locations, it really brings in a very new perspective, you know, I would say very fascinating perspective. I'm also thinking of, I think, Theresa Washington, who um, did some research in Nigeria as well. Um, so there's a lot of you know, new work coming out that I'm just... I'm grateful for and, you know, thank you for including me among the scholars that are, are you know, looking back into these, um, these historical topics and revealing them or adding a new perspective to the topics that we've been discussing. So, yeah, thank you. Of course, of course, you, you are doing the good work. So we, we appreciate you. We really do. Um, Sissy? Hi. Um... I guess I just wanted to say, like, I, I really appreciated this space because before, when I first found out about this movie, I was very excited. And then um, I started hearing about the boycott on Twitter and, like, the way that people were talking about the movie at first, it, it made it seem like they just completely, like, sanitized the whole entire thing and then just gave this one dimensional, like, you know, story and stuff. And I already knew, like, with um with Hollywood and like you know the movies and stuff like that like it's not going to be historically accurate I'm not holding my breath because like yeah. based off of like their track record like I knew there was going to be like you know some form of like critique and stuff but then coming into this space and then hearing you know bits and pieces um not full spoilers but if I even if I did you know it would have been fine um at least I'm knowing that enough that at least they talk about like the um somewhat about the ugly parts I'm assuming and like you know at least encourage like conversations and it's not perfect and like people do have like you know their right to say like they don't they still don't want to watch it but what I do really appreciate overall is that they are adding a more complex narrative to like the the continent of Africa in general especially around that time because 
so like for so long I've just been learning that it was just like you know um the continent was just like you know pillage and everything like that for slavery but like stories like these and movies like these are at least bringing into like you know different histories that show like you know that's not the case it's actually a very complex and intelligent like you know like systems like that has so many different kingdoms and many ugly and bad like histories and um um people and stuff involved in it they were not just like helpless and they were not also like completely innocent either so that's what i really appreciated and um at least i'm hearing that the movie is like bringing that up and from what i'm seeing the reactions is bringing in conversations in general so that's why i really appreciate overall about this whole entire thing regardless of how anybody like feels about it <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Susie. Thank you for being here and um, for engaging and keeping your heart open because I'm not going to lie, coming into this, you know, <laughs> Raphael and I talked about this briefly, you know, how to just handle the fact that some people really hate this movie, <laughs> right? Some people are not happy with the story that was told and how it was told and they are entirely within their rights to feel this way. What I will say, Susie, is enjoy the movie. Okay, it's a uh, brilliant movie like i've never seen anything like it as far as black people acting is concerned like enjoy the hell out of this movie but read the critiques and mm -hmm. take everything in yeah that that was why i was so excited about the movie in general because this is like a story that like has never been told and it's not it's more and like the 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 fact that it was woman led to like it just got me so excited. But then, um, you know, people rightfully so brought in critique too at the same time. So I'm just like, I don't want to like participate if it's gonna just completely just go whole full girl boss everything like that. <laughs> but also from what I'm seeing is that they still like you know in some way or form like, um, you know, bring in like the complicated history of it so i am still gonna watch it like hopefully this week so i can be able to fully be able to give a full opinion on it but yeah i'm just glad that they're like not glossing over like the ugly parts of it at least right right yeah no it, it, and you know something you said it's not just the story it is just the technicalities of how this movie was put together and it's I really want to honor the fact that there are people in here who have not watched the movie. But if, if we might stop stop on that topic for a little bit, because the, the acting, oh my God, is brilliant. Like, John Boyega is magnificent in this movie. I like you guys. <laughs> I mean, for many people, John Boyega is B on principle. But there is a Nigerianness, there is an Africanness that he brings to this role, you know. And, and you, if you've been in a space where there are African, powerful African men, you understand what I'm talking about. There is a way that they take the gravity of their position. There are ways in which they abuse that power. There are ways in which they have fun with it, right? And this is something that he, John Boyega really navigates. And I imagine, you know, actual kings at that time, you know, had fun with their power, what they had access to, the riches. You read some of the accounts and during the, the custom ceremonies, which, you know, were bloody violent ceremonies on one hand, you had people parading all the king's wealth. You know, again, if you are African, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about here. That that exuberance, you know, that that sense of, wow, isn't all this amazing? 
even while keeping in mind that there's there's serious business of food and John Boyega captures that perfectly. There is also the dynamic between the men and the women in the movie. There's the dynamic between uh, Viola Val, Val, uh, King's character and her male um, um, contemporary, right? The, the guy in the male position. There is, there is a, you know, a, a, a bit of conflict between them, but then there is a mutual respect that gets established there is a sisterhood and that's something that i had wished so much that you know more of us had watched the movie because that to me was the best part of the movie and i say this as someone who went to a boarding school in an african country an all girls boarding school in an african country and that's something that i think when more people watch the movies and it's safe to talk about the movie without spoiling it i want to explore some more how the dynamic of the agoje you know in the movie but also from what we can imagine in history is replicated in many of these all girls secondary schools because we think about it you know the 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 Sorry, Viola. I keep saying Viola King, Viola Davis. And I made this mistake also in the first write-up. In the first write-up I did about this, I was, me, I'm mixing her up with Regina King, Viola Davis um, in, in, in her character. But going back going back to this this topic, you know, if you went to a, a, an all-girls boarding school in an African country, I did in Cameroon for seven years. So you show up in this environment, right? It's all women for the first, you know, across all eight ranges, there are senior ones, there are junior ones. First of all, you're adjusting to this structured, almost militaristic lifestyle, right? You, you see you're in dormitories, which might as well be barracks. You wear uniforms, you know, you're shunted into a schedule. You get up, you do chores, you go to uh, service, you go to class, you have exercise, you have sports, and you forge an identity around being a part of this collective, whether you want to be there or not. Right. There were some people who were excited to come to school, to come to these boarding schools. And we spent eight out of 12 months in these on these campuses, you know, alliances formed. You had bullies like bullying, like you will never believe. But there was also sisterhood. You know, there was there was this dynamic where you have bigs and small. So you had older girls who took care of younger girls. The, the bonds that emerged out of that. You had friendships, rivalries. And I imagine that that is just what, you know, life in the palace, but amongst the Agoje were. But then when it became time for us to face up to people from other schools, we were one unit, right? A secret was a secret. When we went to play basketball against other schools, you know, no matter how we felt about each other back on campus, we were there to win. And I, and I imagine that that's something that, you know, was expressed in the agogi as well you know you come into this experience from whatever traumas you're coming from as Rafael pointed out and then you're presented with this you know option to thrive or fall and some people latched onto it you know and some people some of their best years the times when they were grew the most and developed the characteristics that have served them into adulthood leadership you know capability and all of that came out of being funneled through these boarding schools. And for some people, it was the most traumatic years of their lives. <laughs> so that, that's something that I'm thinking I will, I will explore more as, you know, we get more comfortable with these stories. But the sisterhood that, that, that came through in this story, right? If we, if we could just for one second let the, the, the slave trading, raiding and all of that fuzzy into the background and try to imagine these women in these circumstances, you know, trapped, for lack of a better way of putting it, you know, having to make do with what their life was, how they might have related to each other, how they might have supported each other. You know, there is 
stories that show that, you know, um, uh, a woman, a highly placed woman in the palace was actually, if, if, the, if the, the king couldn't sell you, you'd get tied up in a bag and dumped in the sea for sharks to eat you. And there were some sharks out there. There are stories that the sharks who follow the ships all the way to Brazil, you know. So you either got sold or you got dumped in the sea. And this woman, you know, formerly a highly, highly, highly placed woman in the palace, was offered to be sold and nobody wanted to buy her so they dumped her in the sea and her crime supposedly was for facilitating paramours for some of the women in the in the palace so as a as, as an ahosi you were married quote unquote to the king so you couldn't have another lover right probably why a lot of women didn't want to be a part of this thing but you had this senior woman who had helped you know women under her you know, meet with their lovers and things. So there, there was a lot of stuff going on there. And it was out of, you know, the, the sympathy and the understanding and the compassion that we would have for each other naturally as human beings, naturally as women. And, and that's something that the movie captures beautifully, you guys. Like, I can't wait for more people to, like, just watch the story and be blown away by, by some of the things that happen. But also in the movie, it's just the sheer acting talent. Like, I don't know if it's the same for other people, right? But action, when you talk action movies where there is fighting, fighting, the first action movie I ever saw where a woman fought, fought was Kill Bill, right, with Irma Thurman, where she she whoops ass, for lack of a better way of putting it. And, you know, there have been other movies. There's Atomic Blonde with Charlize Theron, and there are all these other movies. But if if... If you think about it, at least my movie-watching experience, there are not a whole lot of roles where women get to be in that role of warrior and, like, really fight, fight. You know, you see it in Asian movies, but because the martial arts is is part of that culture. Um, black women, you know, I think maybe because people are struggling with that that mental image of, you know, violence and everything. No, not this movie, you guys. Not this movie. These girls whoop ass like <laughs> it is beautiful <laughs> i can't lie and the the part of me that you know is non-violent and all of that is just like babe 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 but babe 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 it is so good the act the choreography you know the the way they related to their weapons the way they worked with each other the way the men were pretty much irrelevant when it came down to you know the fighting and everything it's it's beautiful it's beautiful. And, and in the sessions I attended yesterday with, you know, people from, from Benin, you know, they talked about how in present day Benin, you know, you would think that because of this warrior history, women will be more, you know, involved in the armed forces and everything. And that's not the case. And that's because of the damage that colonization did to this community. Again, we can question, you know, what an armed force or the police or whatever really has to offer a sane society. Um, and that's a separate conversation. Um, but just sitting with the reality that, okay, if we have people who are going to fight, what role do women occupy here? And in present day Benin, you know, there is a lot of, you know, stigma about joining the military, especially as a woman. First, because, you know, there's a lot of sexism and sexual harassment in Benin and as in most of the world. But also just because of perceptions of what is acceptable for a woman and what is not. And, you know, it might be shocking coming from a country that have the Ahosi and the Aof, the Agoji in their legacy. But of course, that speaks to shifting times and changing perceptions and just the damage that colonization can do, you know, on, on a community. But 
in the movie, the fighting is A++. Like, huh. There were moments, you guys. There were moments where I was like whooping, like yes, in the in, in the theater because they just they went in, and you know the dynamics between them is just is is brilliant. It's brilliant all around, and I I'm really looking forward to the discussions that that come out of come out of all this. Um, thoughts, questions, comments. Um, I've been going on and on and on and on, just checking in with everybody here. Checking the comments on social media as well. See, I see you, Jim. Thank you for that. Any any questions, comments, additions, Brafiat, anyone? Because I think we're heading towards the end here. No, I think we've said it all. It just remains to watch the movie. <laughs> yeah, no, it really just remains to watch the movie. And I I enjoyed it immensely. Um, everyone who I know who has watched the movie has enjoyed it immensely. I think it has something to offer. And yeah, like like, you know, we just talked about enjoy the movie, but also pay attention to the conversations around the movie because that is how we do this topic justice, right? Not by getting lost in the fuzziness of what is historically accurate. Um, not that we should ignore it either, but understand and appreciate what a story um, offers, right? And I've said before, but what, what I really came from after watching this movie, what I came away with it is that it offers, you know, uh, uh, something along the lines of this is what could have been, but this is what still could be, especially since if we want to talk about slavery and human trafficking, those have not stopped being problems on the African continent or in the world. You know, we, we have issues with people trying to get to Europe, with people going, you know, to, to Asian countries. And there is there is still a lot going on on this topic, you know, and the, the inequalities, the injustices, the, the issues that underlie them are as as real today as they were back then. And that's, that's something we need to keep in mind as we have these conversations, that we face the same issues that people back then faced, more or less. So in, in critiquing history and saying that this is what they should have done, we are also opening our mouths to commit ourselves to what we would have done. And we still have that opportunity to do certain things today. So um, the Agoji were not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. They were flawed, violent, you know, and everything, but they were still humans. They were still products of their environments. And we have an opportunity to tell a different story with our own lives about them. Miss um, Penelope. Hello. Can you hear us at all? Can you hear me now? Yes, yes, yes. All right, great. Loving the discussion. Um, I know I came in halfway the way, but one of the things that I wanted to say, I know there's been a lot of conversation um, regarding, you know, whether or not there's historical accuracy, et cetera. But, you know, we have got to give ourselves a break, really. 
how many films have we seen regarding Western European history where we know slavery was ongoing all the time? They never mention it. It's never part mm-hmm. of the story. And yet we watch these things over and over again mm-hmm. and have no problem with it. I think in, in this sense, we really need to, I mean, I know we want to be you know, truthful to the history and we want to get these things right. But by the same token, as you said earlier, you know, someone's telling a story and it's a story. It has an agenda, certainly, maybe to make us look at ourselves differently, you know, look at what our past could have been, partially was, what our future could be. And um, I would just want to say, you know, for all of the people who are you know, feeling that little bit of guilt and people kind of needling you, I would say, you know, you know, give yourself a break. You know, we are, you know, how many films have we all seen, television shows, where the British Empire is like ravaging the world. Mm. It's never mentioned, you know, while we're watching these shows, they're colonizing places, never mentioned. But yet we see the Mm. resources that are coming in from all these countries and that the British Empire is benefiting from, but we're still watching the shows. So again, Mm. give yourselves a break. Go watch the film, (laughs) you know? Yeah. No, thank you. Thank you so much for highlighting that because that's something that I I hadn't really sat with. You know, you pe- British period dramas, they're all drinking tea. Where did that tea come from? They don't grow tea in the UK. You know, they, they're having curries and chutneys and all that fun stuff. That's not all from the UK. That is products that came to Britain out of the, the activities of empire. You know, how many stories have we had about Napoleon? You know, or all these Alexander the Great and all these characters who were, I mean, the freaking Iliad. <laughs> you know, these people went, raided people, took the women as slaves and did all these things. And still, these are stories that we tell, we enjoy, the art that comes out of them. Give ourselves a break. Put ourselves in the wider context of human history and, you know, have some some compassion. I'm, I'm really glad that you you... You highlighted that because otherwise it's impossible to enjoy the movie and it is a movie worth enjoying. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. So just seven minutes until we wrap up here because we have been at this for like two hours and I really just want to appreciate everyone for their time and attention. Any thoughts, comments, questions, expectations? Um, I think that the last question we were going to touch on was the, that of what kind of stories we would like to see down the line about Dahomey. But we've, I think we've answered that um, to some extent, you know, that we would want to see the truth, but we would also want to see, you know, an account of the whole, the whole truth, the good part of, of what happened, the bad part of what happened. And also to just have fun with things sometimes, right? To just have fun with things sometimes because... The human experience is gruesome and it's funny and it's gruesome and it's funny and it's gruesome and it's funny and we are all living it. We're all living it. So as we wrap up, I want to really thank uh, Rafiat again for agreeing to co-host, for putting in time, you know, for sharing resources. Um, I really want to appreciate everyone who took time to like and retweet and engage, you know, with, with an open heart keep an open mind I think that's something we've all really been able to do here and we had a really productive conversation which doesn't have to end right this this was uh, first impressions 
Um, but I think as we, we watch the movies, if themes come up that we want to explore, I'm sure we can have more spaces to discuss, more things to talk about. So I'm, I'm looking forward to all of that. Any, any last words, Rafia, before we wrap up? Oh, no, I just thank you for hosting. Thank you for um, having the idea of taking our private conversation <laughs> to, you know, to a wider audience. Um, I'm really, I'm, I'm grateful for this discussion and, you know, I can't wait to see the movie now. Yeah, yeah. And I, I hope you enjoy it. I hope everybody else who watches enjoys. Um, this is ongoing. I haven't yet finished reading um, Wise of the Leopard, so you will still see updates about it as we go along. Um, the This thread, the recording will be available, I think, for the next month. And I will, you know, download and save this and make it available. So if you if anyone wants to share it with other people, it will be available as well. Um once again, just thank you all for engaging with mythological Africans to begin with. Um, I think we are able to have this conversation because of your support, because of your interest and your time and attention. And I really, really appreciate it. Um, the, the goal of this platform is to tell the full African story as much as possible, to delve into the myths, the folklore, the, the history and everything, the people, and to, you know, represent that as fairly and honestly and accurately and compassionately as we can and I think we are all participating we're all participating in this in, in the ways that we can so I, I really appreciate you guys um no if you're if you're new to mythological Africans um it's mostly myths and folklore but also exploring the people around it and we have regular twitter spaces um on Friday evenings at 6 p.m eastern time u.s we get together, we read stories, you know, folklore from different parts of the world. We talk about them. So that's what we're about. And um, The Woman King, the movie is, you know, folklore in a sense of the word. And we, we took some time to talk about it. So thank you all again. Um, I hope you have a great rest of your Sunday. This this was so much fun and it went just exactly as I had hoped it would. And this, this would not have been possible without you all. So thank you. Thank you so much again. Um, please take care. Um, we'll we'll see you on the Twitter streets, right? Thank you all so 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 very much. Have a great great rest of your day. Thanks everyone. Thank you, Helen. Thank you, thank you, thank you. If you'd like to participate in these discussions, please follow Mythological Africans on Twitter at Mythic Africans and set a reminder for Friday evenings at five p.m.